Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be discussing a topic that will be familiar to a lot of our listeners and at this point almost bores us because it's something we've talked about on so many different past episodes, so many different points. You're selling it so well, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can hear people turning the episode off right now. Everybody loves listening to hosts who are bored by their own subject. <laughs> That's what they show up for. Absolutely. We're going to talk about layoffs in the media industry. This is a topic we have covered before at various points on punching out various outlets and uh, departments within those outlets being shuttered, uh, whether it was like the New York Times closing down its sports room in favor of the athletic or various newspapers being bought up by Tronk, if you'll recall. Mega Tronk, pardon me. I do suppose another way to put it is as long as this keeps happening, we will continue to talk about it. So we could frame it like that. Somebody has to talk about it because increasingly there are very exactly. few people getting paid to talk about it. I was going right. to say, at some point, we're going to be the last three people talking about it. <laughs> we will be the media. We only can't media. get laid off because we do this for free. So Yeah. As much as I believe we should big ourselves up when we deserve it. The the fact is that this is it this round of layoffs acquired a particularly sinister is maybe not the word I'm looking for, somber character, because everybody at this point who is covering these layoffs knows full well that they may be next in the firing line. So you <laughs> kind of saw the the circle of journalists who were all talking about the major stories that I'm sure you're going to bullet point for us in a second here, Ryan, but everybody who was kind of covering it was covering it from the point of view of, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be to paid to talk about this stuff. And you, you did notice a more funereal vibe to the, the mm -hmm. way that these layoffs were discussed, which I think is a little bit distinct from the previous rounds. Yeah. Well, part of that is that the people doing that coverage have seen so many other previous rounds. And I think the rapid fire nature of the stories we're going to talk about uh, on today's show uh, with layoffs at the Los Angeles times, the staff of sports illustrated being completely up in the air uh, layoffs, there, pitchfork being merged under GQ and naturally layoffs there. There's like all of that happening within a two or three week span has made things particularly grim in the media industry. It's made things made a lot of people question their career choices. And again, not to sound like a broken record, but this is something that has been going on for 
at least a decade at this point. This is something that was happening when I was graduating college with a journalism degree, and now I'm 30. It's in no small part the reason that I'm not working in the media, uh, for pay anyways, you know, obviously, present company excluded. Yeah, like there's there's endless money, not specifically for these publications that were doing these layoffs, but there seems to be endless money for headline op-ed people but for actual decent journalism like it's going to get gutted it's anything that will actually inform you with reasonable accuracy of what's going on around with around you is being targeted so you will get endless op-eds about how what you see with your own eyeballs regarding world events isn't actually what's happening but, you know, learning about what's happening down the block, we don't have access to. Yeah, we're, we're getting to the point where I think the other day it was revealed that the New York Daily News has one reporter for the entire city court system, which is New York City. I mean, yes, New York City. It's also like it can't be funded in New York. Where is it going to be funded? Yeah. Well, the the Daily News appears to be taking the Eric Adams approach to priorities, I would say. And and really, so is everybody else. We are entering an age of openly venal, openly corrupt, bought and sold coverage. All of these media institutions that we're going to talk about are basically getting gutted for the crime of trying to do their job. They, they, if if they had simply knuckled under to the rich people who wanted them to cover things a certain way, they would not be in the firing line. And if we had a country that made sense and a populace that, frankly, didn't wasn't willing to, well, a wasn't willing to swallow that bought and sold coverage a lot of the time, and b the people who weren't willing had the money to you know, fund and, and purchase better options for their their media consumption, their news consumption. If we had that, then, well, this would have never happened in the first place, really. So instead, we have the media landscape that reflects sort of the economic priorities of the country, which is you'll sit there and you will hear what the rich want you to hear, and you will like it because you will have no other option. And if you're above a certain age bracket, age or economic bracket, I guess I should say, you're already pretty much willing to only listen to that kind of alternate reality that they've constructed. Yeah, there are a lot of different places that we could dive into to really kick this segment off. But I think it's best to talk about what's happening at the LA Times, which just a couple of years ago successfully unionized and was hoping to turn things around after being owned by the Tribune company. Was that a Tronk product? I forget uh, whether that brand was attached to the Times or not. I, I don't understand how this works anymore. The The Houston Chronicle has the same thing where the, the Chronicle exists, and then it is one arm of a thing called Cron, which is, there's also Cron, which is the online one. My understanding is that Tribune and Tronk operated kind of the same way. Okay. It, it's a real, like, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing situation. 
Tron being the online version implies that there was a print-only version called Ickle. <laughs> it, it, oh, can you imagine? It, I'm sure it's gotten pretty Ickle over the last few years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's my hometown publication too so that that is very funny to me imagine opening your ickle in the morning and and going like oh i wonder what's on the ickle section today (laughs) sorry (laughs) you have to laugh folks we're we're dancing in the graveyard here so what's happened at the la times uh we have a headline in cnn that notes uh Los Angeles Times plunges into chaos as brutal layoffs loom and senior editors call it quits. Quoting from the article, quote, I cannot overstate the level of chaos. One staffer who requested anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly candidly told me on Monday. To say it has been a rocky start to the new year for the venerable news outlet would be an understatement. Earlier this month, Kevin Morita suddenly announced that he was departing his post as executive editor after less than three years on the job. Then news of forthcoming mass layoffs ensued, prompting the employees union to stage a historic one day walkout on Friday. The LAT's Meg James reported last week that management could slash upwards of 20% of the newsroom, or roughly 100 positions, with the looming layoffs, though a person familiar with the matter warned to me on Monday that it could ultimately be, quote, much worse than that. And where do you go with that? Because, like, the LA Times is a newspaper in the second largest city in the country, a, you know, a city that has, like, an industry in itself with the movie and TV industry that deserves coverage, This is happening at the start of an election year, which uh, for media companies is like, if you can't make money now, when are you going to make it? And yet, here we are. Yeah, here we are. And this this is really fascinating, given when we were talking about the Zaslav, Zaslav Discovery guy. I don't remember his name. Genius of the year, David Zaslav. Yes. Yes. Genius of the year. Yeah, reigning genius of the year. When like I and I don't think it was the LA Times, but there was another publication that spiked a negative article of him because there was Zaslav was doing some kind of he was producing the yeah. like editor in chief's movie. Yeah, wasn't that GQ? I believe so. GQ yeah, going to come up later. Yeah. Hmm. So unrelated article, yes, but same kind of industry and and same city. And there, if this can happen to one of the biggest cities and their prime, you know, their, their publication record, then the rest of us are screwed, frankly. Yeah. Harper's magazine ran, they, they did the thing they love to do when they want to be self-important and they ran an all text cover. This one said at one point it it mentioned that the estimated proportion of American newspapers that will be gone by, I believe it was 2025, is one in three of the ones that currently exist. So that is saying something. And as you pointed out, Ryan, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that this is happening during an election year. And people are noticing a number of Democrats did write to the Los Angeles board, I think, basically saying, are you serious right now you're considering layoffs during an election year what's wrong with you 
this is how I'm sure they put in a bunch of stuff about how this is how Vladimir Putin is controlling U.S. elections somehow, which is the one thing you're allowed to uh, say about that. You're, you know, the, the, the one he's finally gaining relevance again. He was out for a bit, you know, over the past few months, he kind of took a backseat. He was no longer the new Hitler that that he had been for a couple of years there but he he might be coming back as we head towards the election yeah no thanks for like connecting those dots it's what i was trying to say is with stories like that and with the la times and an election year and major city and everything like it's increasingly obvious that media is being suppressed and journalism is being suppressed so that we don't know what's going on and we just have to listen to whatever you know whatever the billionaires want to tell us. The LA Times case, I think, is particularly interesting because if I remember correctly, over the summer, there was a big controversy over the billionaire who controls the LA Times, whose name I now forget, allowing... Uh, it's I, Patrick Soon Xiong. I believe he put his... Uh, th- there was a big controversy alleging that he basically put his daughter in unofficial charge of the paper and that advertisers were annoyed because she had more liberal priorities than they were willing to, you know, have their brands associated with. So even at the time, they were kind of talking about how is the LA Times, how is this going to affect the LA Times' prospects? And well, now we know the answer. It was almost certainly something, uh, because I think the evidence was like two, three articles or something like that. But it was very clearly meant to gin up this idea of the LA Times is in disarray. They're going to have to cut things. They're going to have to lay people off. And let's be honest here. This clock started the moment they unionized, just like it has everywhere else. All of these publications that have unionized, the, the New York Times we talked about, they dropped their sports desk because that was a union desk that they could then replace with the non-union athletic whose explicit mission from the get was to kill newspapers. So, you know, all of these people are all scratching each other's backs here. They are replacing what used to be in many ways, not an ideal media landscape with something quite hellish. It's funny you bring up the owner's daughter here. He had, put her in charge as a sort of unofficial ombudsman for the paper. And Mm. one of the things that resulted in um, the editor-in-chief's sudden resignation, actually, is um, noted in a uh, Hollywood Reporter article here, quote, the most recent clash, and the one that might have been the last straw for Marita, involved the paper's coverage of the war in the Middle East. According to insiders, a group of senior editors approached Marita to express outrage that more than three dozen Times reporters had signed a November 9th statement severely critical of Israel's invasion of Gaza, but barely mentioning the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel launched from the Hamas-controlled territory. Insiders say Marita initially was reluctant to insert himself into the matter, but decided to restrict, for 90 days, signers of the petition from participating in future coverage of the conflict. That decision reportedly did not go over well with Soon Xiong and couldn't have thrilled his daughter either. She has made her pro-Palestinian views clear on her Twitter feed, where she has pinned a picture of the Palestinian flag and posted instructions to journalists to refer to Israel as an apartheid state. There's a lot going on here, to put it mildly. Is are you are you saying the LA Times is a land of contrasts? Yeah, something else that's going on here is uh, 
Soon Shong, the father, the owner, according to the LA Times itself, gave them sort of a devil's bargain, uh, them being the staffers and the union. Quote, this week, Soon Xiong and other managers asked the union's bargaining unit to relax provisions in its contract intended to protect journalists with seniority from layoffs. If the union agreed to that, the company would offer affected employees a buyout package in advance of any layoffs. Soon Xiong wants to make cuts while also retaining diverse staff members who have joined the paper in recent years as the organization has prioritized its efforts to boost the number of journalists of color to better reflect the community that it serves. You know, effectively saying, you know, we can have this diverse newsroom if these old people give up their seniority, their union protections, and lay down their jobs. Another casualty of DEI. (laughs) Yes. It's... It's a very cynical weaponization. Yes. Of diversity is what it is. It's tokenization of those employees... And it's a very obvious attempt to drive a wedge into the union by trying to pit employees with this is basic union busting. This isn't this isn't remotely modern. This isn't remotely new. They've been doing this since the beginning. Yeah. And the end result of it is that like you're still gonna see like 20% cuts. It's still going to be a pretty massive shakeup of the LA Times, which again, like can be covering like important issues in not just its own industry, but also in movies and TVs and California politics and national politics. This is the second largest paper in the country, but you know, it is also one of just hundreds of newsrooms that have looked a lot like this over the last decade or so. Um, Often at newspapers that weren't as big as the new or the LA Times to begin with. We've talked in the past on punching out how the layoffs that have happened in the media industry have tended to concentrate uh, the remaining jobs in markets like LA and New York and San Francisco and DC at the expense of markets like, say, Rochester and you know the rest of the country. But now not even the big cities are safe, I I guess, is the takeaway here. It being an election year, there's more hot mics than usual. There's more uh, openness about how fascistic a lot of these people are. I think I again, I'm going to pull a loo here and I'm going to start with something that seems kind of unrelated, but it does fit into this pretty well. The other day there were. I think it was in Ohio, lawmakers were caught saying that basically their ban on trans kids receiving care was really just supposed to be a starter to ban trans uh, gender-affirming care for adults, that that was the end game, was the specific word they used, which that's cool that that's what you think, that's that's the metaphor you want to use, fine, whatever, but they were pretty open about it on this call or whatever it was that they were caught, it got leaked, it got scooped. And much the same way, I think in this year, you are seeing billionaires be very obvious about the fact that it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much you subordinate yourself to power. It doesn't matter how how inoffensive you are. If you in any way are different from what they want, 
they will crush you and they will deny you everything. That is that is what they want. It doesn't have to be that way, but that is what they want to do. It doesn't matter if they're David's Saslov of the world. It doesn't matter if they're sports team owners. It doesn't matter if they're newspaper owners or whatever. None of that matters. They cannot stomach the possibility of anything that doesn't go through them for their approval and their dissemination, I guess. We'd made reference to Vladimir Putin earlier in this segment. And I, I do think that like for all of the attention of Russia's role in the 2016 election and 2020, like there was an element of a desire to pin the blame on something foreign when we have in this country, within this country, like a group of people who are all too eager to sway the election through like propaganda and uh, right wing nonsense, you know, without any sort of foreign meddling necessary. Ultimately, did Vladimir Putin affect the election more or Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News and the New York Post? I, I think the uh, proportionality of it all was uh, really out of skew with the reality of who has power in this country, who has influence, who is shaping minds. Did 400 weird Facebook posts from Russian bots sway the election or did like the cable news network that has a million viewers every night. Who could say? Yeah. Well, you you can't the problem is that you run up against the 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 basic issue undergirding a lot of this, which is xenophobia. The the Democrats picked Russiagate as their sort of the the horse that they would back this whole way because Vladimir Putin is a scary foreign name and Rupert Murdoch sounds like a history teacher. So if you go against one of those, you are calling one million, the million viewers every night, you're calling them idiots, you're calling them evil, you're calling them all sorts of names. But if you say, oh, no, it's Putin, it's this foreign devil who came in and and ruined everything, then those, if you're a repentant Fox News viewer, which I increasingly don't think is a thing that exists at this point, if you're somebody who might be conservative, but might have some misgivings about this weird dude uh, who's now the standard bearer of your party, all 500 of you across the entire country now don't have to feel bad about that. You can you can say, oh, my bad, it was the Russians that did it. Which, like, have higher standards for yourself, be better. I mean, if you want to talk xenophobia, Rupert Murdoch is Australian. And oh, I'm well aware of that. be weirder than that? You know? Exactly. A country... If anything, a country famous for criminality. Before we get in more trouble, I, I think the point I want to make is that if you reach the conclusion that all of the wrongdoing happened from a foreign country, then there's an obvious solution to that. You know, you blame the foreign country, you know, nothing more to be done here. You try and stop them from doing it again. But if you reach instead the conclusion that people with gobs of money are owning media outlets and turning them into propaganda factories, you know, to the extent that they were ever anything different, then the conclusion you have to reach, the the action that implies, well, that's a lot more difficult, isn't it? Because it requires challenging the ownership of capital over our media outlets. It requires challenging the 
influence that these people have in our politics, which very few politicians on either side of the aisle are really willing to do. We should take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about some media outlets that probably have less geopolitical impact, but nevertheless saw layoffs and restructurings and weirdness over the last couple of weeks that is worth talking about. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment today, we talked about... uh, the impending layoffs at the Los Angeles Times and how that echoes layoffs that have been happening throughout the news industry for the past 10, 20 years at this point. We're going to stay in the media in this segment, but we're going to shift our focus to a couple of outlets that have probably seen better days. First, I think we should talk about what's going on with Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated, we've talked a bit about their plight in the past on Punching Out. Uh, I think we made mention of it when they were bought by Authentic Brands Group, uh, which would have been pre-pandemic to give a sense of time to it all. Life under Authentic Brands Group has not been going well for Sports Illustrated, which recently announced that its print division was just going to be uh, wiped out entirely from the sounds of it. Quoting from the New York Times, uh, the company that publishes Sports Illustrated said in an email to employees that it was laying off many of them, leaving in doubt what lies ahead for the publication. The move came after the Arena Group, which publishes the magazine and website under a complicated management structure, had its license to operate the publication revoked. Reporters and editors for Sports Illustrated were asked on Friday to attend a Zoom call at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. It lasted just seven minutes. On the call, Jay Frankel, the Arena Group's newly hired Chief Business Transformation Officer. Chief Business Transformation Officer. That should be illegal. BS jobs, like 101 right there. Said... Quote, we will continue to produce the Sports Illustrated brand and online content until the situation is fully resolved, according to a recording of the meeting heard by the New York Times. No questions were taken. So that's probably good, right? I, I did not know the part where in 2015 it should have just been changed to sports. It was no longer illustrated because they stopped hiring staff photographers and laid off all of them. And then I know that we covered Sports Illustrated before when Arena Group first took over when they were still the Maven or something like that. And they were they were hiring like high school grads or whatever. Gosh, I remember the Maven. It's been such a long time since we talked about the Maven. I wonder what the Maven is up to. It, it's Arena Group. It's literally the same company. Oh, they just rebranded. Oh, that's yeah. That's... They rebranded. What happened to authentic brands? 
Come on. No. Rebranding. Who's that so, for? They they lost the illustrator part, and now they lost the sports part, at least for the time being. So really, the publication should just be a blank space. So, no, that's a really interesting point, because what jumped out at me from from that article and the discussion of these layoffs at the publication is that Authentic Brands has basically split the brand part of Sports Illustrated away from the publication spark part of sports illustration so you have the brand that is sports illustrated which continues in its like weird zombie form because there's a an upcoming sports illustrated golf tournament in las vegas which absolutely cursed location for a golf tournament and then there's the publication part of it the actual meat and potatoes of what makes sports illustrated sports illustrated might not exist anymore like, Noah pointed out it's not illustrated, it's not sports, it's nothing now. It's just, like, a logo you can put on a t-shirt and and give money to authentic brands. Well, more than t-shirts, I, I think it's the supplement business that they've been getting into yeah. under the Sports Illustrated name. And we discussed, you know, before recording how there's an element of, like, almost the ship of Theseus here, where... You know, at what point is Sports Illustrated no longer Sports Illustrated? Like if it's just the supplement brand and the golf tournament brand and the magazine doesn't exist, is it still Sports Illustrated? It, it is because uh, to counter your philosophical point with another one, we have reached the point at which brand names are like a signifier that doesn't have to have a signified anymore. You know, there, there doesn't have to be a single relationship between those two things. I mean, look at what we have for – it's an election year. Look at what we have for our choices and tell me that there is any meaningful relationship between a brand, quote-unquote, whether that be in politics or media or whatever, and the product, quote-unquote. We're, we're doing Restore the Soul of America round two with a guy that can't get through a sentence without – muddling three words together without presumably some sports illustrated supplements which by the way if that's the business you're getting into and you're branding it as sports illustrated there's like a message there that i don't think the major sports leagues would like to be associated with this is steroids right this is like for people who want to go to the gym better yeah, they, they should just lean into it and start naming it after, like, players who got suspended for uh, for for juicing. That's what they should do. Is this Nugenics? Is this uh, Frank Thomas's uh, testosterone sure. company? They're going to keep trying. You know that. So, well, the thing I wanted to say in particular is that the Sports Illustrated case is interesting for two things. One, that the article you sent us is from the New York Times which should have a sense of shame about this, given that they did the same thing. They should have, they should be forced to cover all of this with, by the way, we shuttered our own sports desk so we could outsource it to a bunch of non-union employees that cover and, and then laid off a bunch of them too. Like the New York Times did this exact thing. The fact that they are covering somebody else doing it is a, just such a display of, of chutzpah on, on this front. Second of all, the narrative about Sports Illustrated was that it was dying, that it had been dying for a very long time. They have an interview with Rick Riley talking about how it, it's kind of been there for a while, the photographers, and then the AI content under the, uh, that they 
didn't know how it got there and the high schoolers that they were recruiting to like cover college football and whatever the hell, all this stuff. Right. So the, the, the brand has kind of been going along like the Ottoman empire sports journalism. And that's been the narrative. But the thing is their audience is actually increasing. They are recovering. So the fact that it got shuttered, it, this this gets like shunted into like paragraph five of every article, is because the arena group didn't pay their damn bill. Ultimately, that's why. So it, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the metrics or the media or the ad money or whatever. It's just we feel like we're going to cut here because we don't want to pay anymore for this license. Yeah, the ownership structure is really an odd one where the authentic brands group owns the brand of Sports Illustrated, but then licenses out the magazine of Sports Illustrated and the responsibility of publishing it to the Maven, now known as um, the Arena Group. You know, very weird setup, but would you like me to read off a list of the authentic brands group's other brands because some fun brands are they well, better be they better be really authentic ryan this better be good is izod authentic to you is aeropostale authentic to you how about billabong but david beckham just they have okay. his branding rights shaquille o'neal okay what? Just like people, Reebok. like a person. And then, oh my What God. was that last one? Reebok. The shoe well, company. This is very interesting. Yeah, I know what Reebok is. We started <laughs> off with like the three brands of clothing that everyone was wearing when I was in middle school. And yeah. then went to two guys who, how do I put this politely, are not famous for making smart choices with their money. Julius Irving. Forever 21. Yep. Okay. Do continue. Tap out. The like shirts for UFC guys. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. I am absolutely picking up a pattern here. Authentic brands are like, what did millennials buy when they have not thought seriously about much of anything in the past let's just years. get some stores that were in the mall once yeah yeah what sorry what was that last one you said ryan uh as lou was was van hoisen the like um jc penny oh, really? pants brand and and shirts yeah my there was a van hoisen factory in my dad's hometown in puerto rico okay his history teacher used to tell them, apparently used to tell them that the majority of the class, that's all they were good for working at the Van Hoysen factory. Rough. Yeah, yeah. Pedagogic has changed. Uh, any more interesting little uh, bombshells you want to put there? Because I do think you're right. Eddie um, Bauer. Oh, for... F <laughs> God. The only brand on this group to have a riot named after them. Brooks Brothers. <laughs> this is the most basic ass group of brands I think anyone could put together. I'm actually kind of amazed that they 
like all of these end up under this group and then that group is not under like Unilever or Cisco <laughs> or Pepsi. The Authentic Brands Group had $22.5 billion in revenue in 2021. Great. That's that's so cool. I'm, I'm so happy for everybody. I can't believe we just oh, did yeah. Let's Remember Some Brands as a segment on here. <laughs> I am filled with disgust at us. <laughs> the Shaquille O'Neal and David Beckham ones are, are particularly like... Yeah, how are those the only two people? Like, I'm not shocked that they're there, but I'm shocked there aren't other people involved. Oh, there are other people. Marilyn Monroe. <gasps> that's so well, bad. That's, okay, well, that got nasty real fast. Ooh. That's so unfortunate. Muhammad Ali. Oh, that's oh, yeah, gross. yeah. I did know about that. They're they're like relatives are just selling that to somebody. That's awful. Elvis Ooh. Presley. Okay, yeah. Well, that's not shocking at all. So, does this mean? Hold up. Is there a possibility that how involved were they with the Elvis movie? Is what I want to know now. Because I, I badly want there to be a point at which Tom Hanks had to screen test that accent with a bunch of ABG executives. Just weirdly a bunch of old Sports Illustrated covers in the background of that movie that nobody noticed. Yeah, wild. <clears throat> okay, if we've taken a fun diversion down Authentic Brands Road, but the point of all of this is that the once respected brand of Sports Illustrated is now like... A graveyard. It is now a place that sells brain pills instead of uh, Rick Riley articles, which people can disagree about which one is better for your health. But I was about to know. say, yeah. <laughs> at one point, Sports Illustrated was a place that you could have a career at. You could have a very well-respected career at. You could make money as a journalist at Sports Illustrated, and it isn't really that anymore which is the story of so many different outlets uh, over the years, but probably few as old as Sports Illustrated. Yeah, and I, as somebody, you've both heard me say this on previous episodes, that sports is like the only cultural space left in the United States. It's the only thing you're allowed to talk about. If you can't preserve a publication that has sports in the damn name... What is even what what are we doing here? Because people just really didn't like illustrations. Yeah, well, I mean, they don't like reading either. So yeah, I was gonna say that leaves them with words, and and clearly that's not a driving interest. Yeah, because I I happen to know that in the last week there was apparently Dave Zirin wrote for the Nation about how the NFL is trying to buy a stake in ESPN. Which is great, because it's not enough that ESPN is owned by Disney and has absolutely no incentive to cover the dark side of, of the NFL. It, it, let's be real, ESPN is the football network now. It, it Other sports basically don't exist. So, them, it, and the NFL has its own media arm that we know kills stories that will make the league look bad as you would expect, but they're not content with that. They want to become this octopus that owns any kind of entertainment that could, that could potentially cover the league in a negative light. And 
this is like one of the few things you're allowed to complain about as a sports fan and not be shoved in a locker somewhere. You're allowed to say the media coverage is bad. You're allowed to do this. And it's largely because you're not going to stop watching. You're not going to stop. Uh, like if Sports Illustrated keeps like one person typing out one story a month, you're going to link to that if it's a good story. You're not going to stop watching the product. It's still going to make money. So there's absolutely no incentive for any of these people. None of them are going to lose money. None of them are ever going to lose out by doing any of this because it just doesn't matter. We have a public that doesn't want to that that doesn't want to read, and then on top of that is encouraged not to care, not to read by a lot of factors. Some of them out of their control, but they're certainly giving into those for understandable reasons. And so, when one of the most venerable, not going to say brands names in sports coverage is gutted like this, there's nothing anybody can do about it, and there's no, not going to be any penalty for that. Like, imagine if all of these celebrities go into this golf tournament just up and quit and said, no, we're not doing this. That would be, you know, that would be something. They could do that. It'd be minimal, but they could do it, and they're not going to because they don't care, and neither does anybody else. Yeah, I, I think it's the, like, not caring of it that galls the most here. There is this real sense that, like, the people in charge of these things aren't particularly interested in what their companies do or what they put out. It's strictly just a machine for generating revenue turnaround, generating profit, generating some sort of money metric that you can stack onto the money metrics you already own. And if that means Sports Illustrated gets most of its revenue through brain pills and cruise licensing deals and things entirely unrelated from the original idea of Sports Illustrated, then so be it. I think that was captured best in a headline uh, by Luke O'Neill, who writes at his own blog called Welcome to Hell World. And his article on the subject is headlined, These guys hate the things that they own. There's just really not to be nostalgic for an older class of, you know, capitalists, but there was a sense that, like, at least Henry Ford really liked cars, you know, and now you can't even expect that out of your ownership group. Yeah, you still get the anti-Semitism on occasion, just, you know. Probably could have picked a different. Yeah. (laughs) The flip side of the brand thing is, you know, Sports Illustrating very clearly breaking off and separating the brand from the product. But then there's other publications that don't understand what their product is, but still want it to support another brand. The big example in the news was Pitchfork being folded into GQ as a uh, way, I don't know, to adapt the audience for Pitchfork, which has been increasingly diverse and has covered diverse topics and is moving in that direction, now will be part of a men's magazine. So there's a huge disconnect between what that product is and what it's owner Condé Nast the publication group like the direction they're pushing this this publication Pitchfork and they just don't know and so 
either they're trying to sink that publication deliberately or they're trying to force it to be something else in my mind. Yeah. And Condé Nast has, I think less of an excuse than a lot of these other ones in that they're supposed to be famous for being a longstanding publisher of like culture magazines. They're, they're supposed to be a home for good writing for serious people like the Robert Benchley, Dorothy Parker. A lot of these people actually wrote for a Condé Nast publication once upon a time. But of course, again, we keep coming back to the fact that now nobody wants that writing out there. What they want is slop that confirms their views or, you know, gives them information on how to play fantasy sports or whatever. So you have when when the needs of people in the coverage are, are very low on the hierarchy, then you're not going to get something distinguished or interesting. And that ends up it, it ends up turning what should be journalism or or good writing into data entry. That's all it is. And I think it's particularly interesting to take uh, the the Slate article that you shared with us, Ryan, talks about how Pitchfork did start, and this was one of the reasons why maybe I didn't read it as much as I could have back in the day, and still don't, if we're being honest, but uh, how it was very non-diverse. It was very much like headed by white dudes. It was uh, famous when I was in college for being extremely hipster. I think the the Slate article makes reference to them nonstop talking about Animal Collective, which, yeah, that that sounds about right. I went through that phase too, but I didn't need Pitchfork to do it. And over time, they did become more diverse. And here's Condé Nast saying, actually, we're going to take that back. I I feel like men in the modern, in the 21st century, are associated enough with Pitchforks that this wasn't necessary. Um. Like this, this feels a little bit too on the nose. But at the end of the day, like these things get shuffled around, and it's just a name on a website. It whatever association that people have with Pitchfork or Sports Illustrated, for that matter, is less important to the people who own it than like the ad demographic that they represent. The like. Okay, here's our low culture brand. Here's our high culture brand. Here's the brand that we're going to put tap out advertisements next to. <laughs> like, that's all it is to them. Here, I should pause to note that last week, Condé Nast had a, a significant walkout uh, from its staffers owing to pending layoffs. Uh, Condé Nast, still a media company. For now, headline in CNN: More than 400 Condé Nast staffers staged a walkout to protest those layoffs. Condé Nast announced on November 1st it was planning to cut 5% of its workforce. The company then revised the plan, announcing it would lay off 94 unionized members, or some 20% of the Condé Nast union. The union's bargaining team countered management's proposal, offering a slimmer number of layoffs, more severance, and a moratorium on cuts. The publisher's last offer, issued earlier in January, kept the total number of cuts at 94 and almost half the proposed severance, the union said. This strike got a little bit more media attention than maybe it otherwise would have because it prompted a um, walkout by, was it Anne Hathaway? Who's who's the actress who walked yeah, out? Yeah, that one. Yeah, she was on a shoot for something or another. 
Oh, and I don't man. even like Anne Hathaway that much. So you, when you have to hand it to Anne Hathaway, like I mean it. You have to hand it to her. Uh, yep. She's a real one, turns out. All of this stuff is going to continue getting worse, right? Like Condé Nast is going to shuffle around Pitchfork a few more times before inevitably Pitchfork becomes Sports Illustrated. It becomes Gawker. It becomes another name in the graveyard of online publications. That's true. Like the criticism, not marketplace, but like journalism that critiques anything is that more and more people don't want to put out a product that could be said to be bad. Like it could be trash, but nobody can tell you that it's trash. So anything that will say, Hey, your album's not good. You don't want to alienate potential advertisers right right? i remember when the transformers movie like i think the second one came out or something like that it was a really weird situation where there was a an is it an embargo when they block all media discussion of it until the release date so there were it was notable at the time that there was an embargo on reviews of the film until the release date which now like everybody kind of accepts as this is going to, this is how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People have been screaming about this since I think I was in high school. Like we're, we're going on nearly 20 years of people pointing out that this is happening, that access journalism is a problem and nobody built any kind of alternative institution. And I don't mean that to say that it is, easy to do that or that it doesn't take a bunch of money and labor but it is kind of sad that when people had like money in their pockets and the dollar was worth something and there were certain regulations still left on the books instead of basically the the increasingly mad max-esque america that we live in now and i mean the first movie where they still pretend the government is functioning nobody thought about Okay, how do we go outside of this? How we, how do we build something that doesn't depend on the goodwill of a bunch of billionaires who have absolutely no interest in anything but being rich? Not making anything, just being rich. How do we not do that? You are seeing groups of journalists who have made their bones strike out on their own. They're, we've talked about the factor a bajillion times, and we'll end up talking about them a bajillion more. Because they cover the thing, the kinds of things that Pitchfork and Sports Illustrated and so on used to cover. They are probably going to be the only sports section, the only worthwhile sports coverage left on the internet within a few years. There's Aftermath. Yes, thank you. The, the video game version of Defector, which was started by, is it Patrick Klepek? Was that who... No, Patrick Klepek's a different project. This was uh, started by former writers at Kotaku. But right, you know, right, same right. basic idea where like the f- people who used to work at Waypoint for Vice now have their own mm-hmm. outlet, which I think is called Remap, but I could be wrong on that. Mm. And then there's 404 Media, which is a number of science and technology types uh, that came together. And they have already had to basically point out, they've said, you know, we've been able to build something of a sustainable business and we're already getting attacked by the absolute maelstrom of quote-unquote AI slop 
that is plagiarizing news articles and then just putting them on sites called like News World Service or Global Weekly Articles or I don't know, Newsweek, whatever. <laughs> so there there are shoots, there are rays of hope here. There are people trying to strike it on their own and make this happen, but it's going to take money from people like the people on this call and the people listening to this show to subscribe to these projects and help make them sustainable because you can't write for no money. That's how you end up starving to death. I do think there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, Defector was famously founded by former Deadspin staffers who had all quit that company in solidarity. Aftermath is coming from the, well, aftermath of Kotaku you know, former vice staffers have get garnered together to form a new outlet where weirdly what's tying these groups of people together is the brand they once wrote for. And you're seeing like fans of that former brand follow them to a new outlet without the same brand, without the, you know, turns out what's important is not the authentic brand, but you know, the laborers who make that brand, known for the thing it's known for. And I think that's as optimistic a note as we can find to end this episode on the idea that no, we don't just have to settle for the New York times. If in the future, the New York times is publishing AI garbage, we can actually find the people who are responsible for like quality journalism at whatever outlet they may be now or in the future that's where our focus has to be instead of on the legacy brand quote unquote that um, will inevitably carry on with its own inertia for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.